Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btopher at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guests are Dean Sharp and Salem al Quedwa to talk about their book, Open Gaza, Architectures of Hope. Salem is shelter manager for the Gaza Strip, as well as a conflict and peace fellow at Harvard University. Dean is the co-director of Terraform and an LSC fellow in geography and environment at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Thank you both for being here with me today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. Great to be with you. Thank you, Brian. It's a pleasure. So before we start, uh, you know, I gave a quick snippet. Could you both kind of tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Absolutely. Um, So I'm an urban geographer based at the London School of Economics, and I've been working on urban questions around the Middle East for over 15 years now. Uh, This is my second co-edited book and an outcome of a decade of work with Michael Sorkin, who's obviously a very well-known architect and prolific writer and scholar around urban questions as well, and the question of the right to the city in particular, public space and spatial justice. And uh, my work with him was also at Terraform, that was an organization that he set up in 2005, that basically took on unsolicited projects of questions that focused around urban equity, justice, and sustainability. Um, And these kinds of unsolicited projects, often with very little funding, uh, would intervene in, in situations like Gaza and then engage communities and scholars working in those kinds of places um, and connect with people like Salim. Thank you, Dean. Actually, I am a Palestinian architect based in Gaza and I have more than 15 years of experience from a senior level project management and implementation position in a humanitarian context, disaster preparedness, emergency response and recovery projects in the Gaza Strip, Palestine. Houses and uh, water and sanitation uh, were essential part of each project that I have managed with a deep commitment to providing healthy environment for communities in needs, mainly in rural and marginalized uh, areas in the Gaza Strip. So uh, I worked for two years and a half with the Ministry uh, of Finance on a World Bank uh, uh, funded projects in relation to procurement. And in addition to that, I joined uh, Islamic Relief Worldwide in 2006 as the emergency manager working on affordable housing and uh, reconstructing families uh, that have been displaced from their houses uh, in in Gaza. So while working with three international NGOs, I wrote grant proposals and helped to manage seasonal and domestic events, as well as seven reconstruction projects with a total value of more than five million US dollars ranging from primary healthcare clinics and schools to the rehabilitation of houses for families in need. So I kept working with communities, I mean, on the grounds for more than 10 years, 
And in 2015, I started my PhD by design journey at Oxford School of Architecture, Oxford Brookes University in England, the UK. And uh, recently I have been awarded a fellowship to be a conflict and peace uh, fellow at Harvard Divinity School for this academic year. Brian. Very interesting. And so, uh, you know, both of your backgrounds will come across in the book quite a bit. And so, you know, the first question, especially when dealing with kind of these edited books that have so many different viewpoints, you know, every chapter is very unique and has kind of a different focus. But, uh, you know, not to make this too vague of a question, maybe you could walk us through a little bit of the overall theme of the book. Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. The first thing to say was that this book was a direct reaction to the 2014 operation on Gaza by Israel called Operation Protective Edge. Uh, Michael Sorkin uh, was the initiator of this project who was morally outraged by the violence that was unleashed. And this was the third major assault on Gaza in six years by Israel. And it pushed a context that the UN had already declared by 2020 it would be uninhabitable to ever deeper depths of, of despair. But the impetus for the book was not to document this, the, the devastation and suffering of Gaza, which many other organizations do uh, quite systematically, and the dire state is quite known. What Michael wanted to do was to think of productive interventions that could be brought about by Terraform's community of designers, planners, scholars, and activists. And after a series of roundtables, um, and Salem can perhaps touch upon some of the early ones that I wasn't actually even involved with that happened at the University of Westminster and, and his own connection with Michael. But the idea was to, through a series of roundtables and individual dialogues and research initiatives with Terraform's community, to, to really think about what the type of productive in, interventions could be created. Uh, and then Michael led a, a terraform intervention that imagined a more just and sustainable future for Gaza, um, and then brought this conversation together of which, as the director of terraform and a long-term interlocutor with Michael, I have brought in more of the social science aspects, you know, with anthropologists, um, political scientists, uh, and geographers such as myself, also intervening through both creating analyses of the dire conditions, but also imaginative interventions of uh, what Gaza could be if it was, if people were given their, their basic right to the city. So that was very much the scope uh, of the book. And then this is also reflected in the types of contributions that are in it that come from very grounded interventions. Um, and Salim will speak a bit more about, for instance, his own work in low-cost housing construction, and there's also a school by the architect Omar Youssef. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are imaginative projects by Rafi Stigal, for instance, on the solar dome that's imagining um, a solar energy system for Gaza, or the Internet Pigeon Network by Helga Tawil-Souri that imagines <laughs> an Israeli-free, low-technological uh, way of ensuring that Gaza is connected to the wider world beyond the logics of the occupation. Um, and then, of course, uh, things like the tunnels that uh, show the journey that one of uh, the contributors went from the border in Egypt into Gaza and these incredible engineering feats that uh, have been produced to, again, circumvent some of the serious effects of the um, the, the blockade. 
Absolutely. And so we we won't go through this linear, linearly. We never do. But I think the very first chapter, we'll call Gaza's skin, kind of addresses, I guess, the problem that all of these are kind of responding to. And that is the idea that it is enclosed physically, conceptually, emotionally. And again, I guess, as I admitted before we started recording, that I had a very macro level view of what's going on there, whereas reading stuff like this is a little jarring. You know, particularly, I'd like to hear more about it. The fact that it's very technologically advanced, this very smart city and this fence, but not in the way that I think most of us think of as a smart city. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Salim, maybe I could pass to you to answer some of the, the everyday context of Gaza that you're, I think, far more um, well positioned to, to answer. Yes, uh, thank you so much for your uh, very good question, Brian, at the beginning. I just want to highlight, I mean, how the project was initiated because mainly I was based in Gaza as a Palestinian citizen living with my family and with the rest of the Palestinian uh, mm-hmm. population. So during and after that 2014 operation Protective Edge, which was the third major Israeli assault on Gaza in less than six years, I was in contact with a group of architects based in London uh, and I'm so thankful for Ibrahim Nasser Gulzari and Yara Sharif from the University of Westminster who introduced my work for the first time for the late Michael Sorkin. So when I moved to uh, the UK in 2015, it was a great chance to meet Michael for the first time and even to get the chance of presenting my work in the first Open Gaza Conference, which took place on November 2015 at the University of Westminster. So during that time, I think the meeting itself, the conference, uh, and even uh, uh, this kind of different theme that each and every presenter presented at his uh, presentation and talk initiated the idea of having a book project about Gaza and the urgency of dealing with the realities over there in Gaza. So in terms of the imagination, you are absolutely right. The, The book is a nice collection or a unique collection of works. Some of them are very imaginative because we as architects and designers, we need to experiment with things. We need to imagine the future of the people over there. And in other words, also other chapters and contributions are dealing with within the reality of the Gaza Strips. For example, as you mentioned that the first chapter is uh, the skin of Gaza of Tarek Bakuni. Uh, my second chapter or, or the second contribution is my own chapter where I'm trying to go yes. beneath the, the skin of the everyday and to reveal, uh, I mean, uh, What's going on, I mean, in terms of of the everyday life? So, for example, I offer a visual analysis of the existing objects that surround the Gaza inhabitants and the buildings in which they and I myself live with with my family. And this is, by the way, followed by a social and physical mapping exercises that I I did extensively while working with with local communities and also offering a design-based case study for one of my projects that I have Uh, coordinated from uh, inception to completion to show how this kind of uh, extension or by offering this kind of minimum uh, shelter and housing solution could help local communities to improve their life over there. And that's a great segue. You had mentioned the chapter where you discuss, you know, the architectural work you had done. You know, I'll be honest. So when I first read it and you see the images and there's a discussion of the dismal unemployment rate. And so, 
you know, sadly, the first thing I thought of was, well, hell, construction would be a perfect way to rebuild the city and employ people. But then reading it, it's very clear that there's a reason construction isn't happening at a large scale. And I, you know, I'd love, I think our listeners would be shocked to hear whether, you know, whether it's the limitation of materials, the poorly performance of those materials. Yeah, exactly. So you are touching a very important thing in terms of material or the, the existence and the entry of material or what's so-called, I mean, the moral minimalism, because, you know, Israel is having a full control over the Gaza Strip with less, I mean, responsibility. So they are offering everything in the minimum standard, the, the entry of, of, of construction material. And on the top of that, you know, reconstruction and destruction and reconstruction are taking place at the same time. So you could imagine each and every two years, we are having this kind of attacks on most of the population on the gas strip. So reconstruction and destruction is taking place at, at the same time. What I'm offering over here is uh, to have this kind of, I mean, uh, work with communities to be a good listener to our clients and having also the social responsibility while working on such sensitive projects because you are not dealing with a client, I mean, who could offer you a certain amount of money rather than working with right. communities in need. So the second part of the chapter, which is a design-based case study, I'm telling the, the audience into details how we could help those communities in order to expand their, their houses in such, I mean, an incremental way while having the social and the cultural concerns into consideration as well. Absolutely. And you had mentioned kind of modernism, but then you also discussed the fact that everything there is, is built with a human perspective. It's more about survival and functionalism versus an architectural yeah. style. And this is, yeah, this is absolutely right. So I'll give you one funny example. One foreigner once entered Gaza and he said, wow, what a nice gray building you have. He thought that we do have a construction boom, but based on the necessity, most of the population could not, uh, 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 finish or rehabilitate their houses themselves because of, I mean, the, the bad economic situation uh, due to the Israeli blockade, which is more than 30 years, uh, 13 years right now. And we do have also electricity cut off more than 20 hours per day, and we have insufficient access to clean water. So you could imagine all those factors, how they are forcing people to build to the minimum standards, which are not acceptable. And sometimes even it's below the minimum standards. So the second part of the chapter is offering this kind of design-based case study and how to include the communities within the process of, of rebuilding their society rather than uh, forcing them to accept, I mean, the international charity or the, the international NGO, I mean, visions such as the mud house or the shelter uh, bag or the sandbag or the wooden shelters. And I might leave it to Dean also to talk a little bit about this kind of uh, uh, reconstruction violence, which is taking place uh, rapidly in the region as well. Yes, yeah, Salim, thanks. I just, Salim touches on a point um, in terms of my own broader work. I'm working also on a book called Reconstruction as Violence, the Case of Syria, that has also strong parallels to what we're seeing in Gaza and many of the chapters touch upon this Gaza reconstruction mechanism that was a tripart agreement established by the Palestinian Authority, the Israelis and the United Nations. Uh, and many of the contributors detail how far from any reconstruction process, this reconstruction mechanism is actually enforcing and entrenching the uh, blockade and further immiseration um, of Gazans. 
rather than any kind of positive rebuilding sense. And there are certainly parallels and the furious debates that are going on in the context of Syria at the moment as to whether reconstruction happens. And we've already seen very early how the reconstruction process has become very much a part of how warfare is conducted, hence the uh, title Reconstruction as Violence, which was also a conference I put in um, I put on in uh, MIT uh, a couple of years ago. And it also speaks to many contexts across the region um, in Libya, Yemen, Iraq, of course, in Afghanistan, and so on. You've all had very long now reconstruction processes that are really stretching the, the terminology and, and our conceptual understanding of what reconstruction actually consists of and the way in which the built environment can be weaponized and this larger urbanization of violence and warfare that we've witnessed over the past 20 to 30 years. So uh, to add to that, Ryan, just to make it, I mean, more clear for our uh, American audience, let me bring this, uh, this example in order to let them, uh, I mean, imagine how a typical building looks like. So before, I mean, this describing how we, you, we are used to live in, 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 in Gaza or in the region, uh, I would like to highlight the following fact that during the last year and even this year and even before the pandemic, millions of young people in the United States and America between the age of 23 and 38 returned to live with their parents. For some of them, it was, I mean, uh, a choice, but for most of them, it was a necessity simply because of the unemployment, they could not offer any more to rent a house or to rent a, 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 an apartment. And you know, there's the rest of the story over here in the United States. In Gaza, because of the extended family system, we used to live with each other. For example, a typical building, let us imagine a section, my grandparents are living in the ground floor because it's easier for them to have mm -hmm. access and to receive visitors. In the first floor and the second floor, their married sons, and in the third floor and the fourth floor, if someone of their grandchildren are going to marry, so they used to add this kind of incremental, I mean, one room or one typical floor on the top of that, and you will see the naked columns with steel bars coming on the top of the building. It's called the Columns of Hope because, you know, you could easily read the story of the building that it's an incremental one and it will keep growing, I mean, according to the family expansion. So when the Israelis are destroying this kind of typical building, they're not only destroying the physical structure itself, I mean the building, rather than tearing out the social fabric of the extended families. And over here, the international NGOs are coming to offer this kind of transitional shelter, which is the mud house or the sandbag shelter or the wooden shelter, which is not suitable or responding to the uh, sociocultural, I mean, uh, norms of, of the families over there. And also because of its, I mean, uh, cost and the availability of material in relation to the blockade against the Gaza Strip. So I hope that uh, description highlighted the importance of including the community within the process as Dean just, uh, just described right now, not in Gaza, but also considering Gaza as a unique example for the reconstruction process in the rest of the region, such as Syria, Yemen, Iraq, and Libya. That was great. And I actually want, uh, there's one point I'd like to talk about, and I do want to come back to relating something to our American, American experience. But you had just touched on the, you know, there was a point in the book I found very interesting, and that's as 
people in the Gaza Strip, when they when you're dealing with your hierarchy of needs, as the focus is more on survival and basic necessities, you lose what you call social cohesion. And so you had mentioned in the book, it talks about how there's almost this shame of guilt or sorrow. Which, exactly. And again, I, I, pers- I personally had not heard about that. And I think that's something that brings to light kind of this problem. Exactly. It's this kind of total dependency on, on humanitarian aid because most of the people are surviving, I mean, from day to day. And, you know, because of the COVID pandemic as well, it, it creates a pandemic within a pandemic because of the overcrowding over there. And you are asking people to stay at their homes. I mean, it's like, I mean, giving them uh, an order to stay in a, in a gas room because simply overcrowding is a creating a problem we do have limited access to open and public spaces so it's creating a a pandemic within a pandemic and in terms of shelter and housing we are still also depending on humanitarian aid international ngos so considering the everyday life and contribute and the contribution of the people it's a way of giving back dignity to the society and to empower the local people themselves Right. And so the, what I, the point I wanted to come back to, you know, as you're relating some of this to our American experience, there's a, there's a few chapters that talk about the idea of planning. And again, I, I, I'll, I'll let my own bias as a practicing architect shine through, you know, dealing with planning boards can be a bit of a nuisance, but it is part of our process. Whereas in here, it's presented as a solution because not to oversimplify it, it sounds like there literally is no planning endeavors in Gaza. Yes, exactly. Planning is, is totally missing simply because people could not plan for, for, for next month or for next year. Simply attacks could take place at any moment. So planning is totally missing. And even the real meaning of architecture, I mean, being a shelter, protection, and even freeing people both mentally and psychologically is totally missing. Simply buildings could be a, a weapon to kill people rather than to be a machine to to, to live. And I think Dean could highlight also the, 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 the importance of planning and uh, the loss of planning at that place as well. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's always this uh, tension between top down and, and bottom up. But of course, without any top down planning at all, you do get the, uh, the situation of, of deliberate uh, confusion, chaos, uh, and you can't have mechanisms to resolve one of the most important issues that human society brings, which is who can live where, how, and under what conditions. Um, so planning, of course, is, is absolutely essential, but you know, too much of it um, can obviously be incredibly oppressive and, and none at all equally. I think it shows, it shows in this context can, can also be, be a form of organized violence as, as well. Um, and, you know, the deliberate obstacles that are placed in the creation of a planning system of ensuring that cadastrals are not really defined is, um, you know, a way of uh, ensuring that a society is continually fractured and divided. Um, and, right. and the complexities of those social systems that really get illuminated in a uh, case like Gaza, and I hope comes through the, the book as well. Uh, I believe it does. So speaking of kind of long-term planning and consequences, there's something you had mentioned earlier in this interview, and it's brought up a few times in the book, and that is that UN had released 
at least one or multiple reports kind of proving that in 20, by 2020, Gaza will be completely unsustainable and unlivable. And so I personally was very interested because we're now in 2021. And so the first thing that came to my mind is, well, how is Gaza doing? As simple of a question as that is. The situation in Gaza is still the same. I mean, 2020, 2021, and uh, being away from Gaza, I thought that the situation is going to be the same, but uh, uh, it dramatically changed from one month to, to another. So we're still facing this kind of lack of uh, access to clean water and the electricity cutoff as well. And as I told you before, the pandemic, the COVID-19, and asking people to stay at their houses is completely dangerous and also it's creating uh, another layer of social problems. I mean, this kind of domestic abuse, the high rate of unemployment for, for younger people over there. So still the, the situation is getting worse year by year. So I think the Open Gaza book is a unique project that is, is calling for the freedom of the Palestinian people and the freedom of people to move from one place to, to another and also to have free access to materials, to resources, similar to, to, to other places in this world. And just to add to what Salem was saying and, and also your question, Brian, I think it's important to emphasize the fact that many of those UN reports and the famous one around Gaza being uninhabitable in 2020 was actually written in 2012, which was two years before Operation um, Protective Edge that right. left observers like Sarah Roy, who's been going back and forth to Gaza for, for over 30 years and, and wrote the preface of the book, was left utterly shocked at what she saw. And maybe Salem could also elaborate on what it was like being in Gaza at the time because he was also living there. Um, so just to say that, you know, obviously, the, the suffering and, and deprivation there has, has reached ever greater depths. But to bring to open Gaza and this idea of architectures of hope, you know, we, we wanted exactly this, to get remarkable people like Salem and display the work that he's doing despite the challenges, to show the schools that exist and the architectural achievements that are still being done in these oppressive and devastating contexts. And to highlight that, this is not an intractable problem going on in Gaza. Israel could lift the siege tomorrow. They could allow cement in. They could allow people to rebuild. That Palestinians, you know, are, have some of the highest literacy rates in the world. They are skilled engineers and architects. Most of the Middle East is built by Palestinians. They are a, an incredibly skilled community. And that this deliberate destruction, purposeful destruction, is something that is a case of political failure by us humans that really could be solved tomorrow and needs to be solved yesterday. Uh, Brian, if you could uh, give me the final word because I have to leave, I have to pick my kids from the school and I'm so thankful for your kind invitation and for Dean for recommending my name as well to participate in this uh, talk. Uh, frankly speaking, I think uh, the uniqueness of the book and the beauty of the book uh, will uh, will happen maybe 10 or 15 or 20 years later when someone will hold uh, the, the book uh, in his hand or in her hands and will find that uh, some practitioners, I mean scholars, designers, architects, planners, try to do something. I mean, rather than to talk about the problems and to keep talking about the problems and 
putting Gaza such as, I mean, in this kind of infographic, infographic, I mean, charts and numbers that there were a group of people led by the late Michael Serkin who tried to do something and to deal with the realities and to imagine a better future for the free people uh, in Gaza and for the free Gaza and the free Palestine. Thank you, Brian. Thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Right, so, uh, so, Dean, there was, a, there was a couple other concepts I wanted to go through, though. So sure. you had just talked about the engineering and the skill that kind of resides there. And so one thing, I, I again, my own personal interest, is, you know, so there, it's hard to get things in and out. It's hard to move things around. And yet people are still doing it. And so you had kind of hinted at a, a big engineering marvel that's kind of going on is their tunnel system, one that I personally had no knowledge of before. So I, I think our listeners would love to hear more about the fact that people are literally using tunnels to move around. Yeah, I, so the tunnel system is, um, I think, for all us urban geographers, architects, designers, it, it captures the imagination. Instantly. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and there, you know, are all sorts of stories in the media that you can look up as well of KFC being delivered through these tunnels mm-hmm. from, from the Egyptian side of the border to, to the Gaza and, and Ferraris or, or luxury cars being um, taken through these um, tunnels and also cattle, all sorts of things. Um, and yeah, they are intricate uh, uh, and highly complex engineering feat that also have an incredible political, social uh, organization as well behind them with different political groups and family factions that negotiate over who can operate tunnels and how. Um, and the one of the contributors in the book uh, details four different types of tunnels. You know, yes. one in which she can uh, walk through completely um, upright and unheeded, um, and another one she has to crawl through. Um, and the, the different qualities of the tunnels that some being, um, you know, uh, some being, you know, quite rickshaw and others you know with kind of almost air conditioned units right. kind of fitted into them so yeah that, I, I i think that this is also um a, a fascinating fact and and just going back to the the larger point of the urbanization of warfare and, and conflict you know we've seen this the the vast tunnelizations that have gone on um across this border region of rafa and, and egypt uh, and and into gaza changing that that landscape um, in, in at the subterranean level um, and we've also seen similar things in in Syria of vast tunnel networks being being built for, for shelter of people going to school and hospitals to avoid being targeted and, mm-hmm. and also uh, habitation to them actively going in conflict because the subterranean remains one of the uh, sole spaces that military technologies, you know, find difficult to, to locate and block. So, you know, you see resistance, if you like, uh, tunneling and, and that kind of survival mechanism changing the landscape. Um, and, you know, there, this is, of course, a, a long-term thing in Vietnam, of course. The, the right. tunnels were also a very famous um, part of, of the conflict there. 
And so, you know, as I said, there's, there's, a, there's quite a bit in here to digest. So I would urge everyone to read it. And so you had, you know, when, as I'm closing these, I always like to hear, and you had already hinted at it, you know, so since the books come out, you know, what have you been working on? What maybe has changed from the book? And I, like I already hit, asked about, you know, how has it been since 2020? Yeah, I mean, well, firstly, you know, we, we also lost Michael Sorkin to COVID in, in yes. March 2020. Um, and that was a huge loss to the architectural community. Uh, and me personally, as someone, you know, who is very much under the stewardship of Michael, he's been a huge mentor to me personally. Um, but, you know, Michael was a community builder and the Terraform community remains strong and there are a series of events that are going to carry on Michael's legacy. And his writings only grow more relevant by the day if, if that would be his writings around spatial justice and the right to the city in New York, where, you know, questions like Hudson Yards are only becoming more pressing and, and public and affordable housing. And spatial inequalities in this city are only growing. And so his writings uh, are, are, as I say, only growing more relevant. And of course, this work of Open Gaza that he uh, and I just released, you know, the, the question of Palestine and Israel-Palestine and relations with America and how we understand and engage contexts like this um, really are, is a pressing issue. And we wait to see what Biden will do um, in this new administration, and if there will be actually a change in tone and connection between uh, this region of the world from the Trump era, which I think progressives uh, around the world and architectural community has a lot to play in terms of how we engage this context and think about it. And I hope this book also evidences how uh, designers and social scientists can combine and collaborate to produce political interventions uh, that are hopeful, progressive, and meaningful in terms of their ability to impact what goes on on the ground. And there is no more important question for Gazans and Palestinians than questions of space and the built environment and shelter and being able to claim their right to the city. So um, that, I hope, gives a... a broad outline of, of how I see Open Gaza going forward. It was originally imagined that there would be an exhibition in Gaza and, mm. and, and in, in London and, and many other places around the world to highlight some of the many um, illustrations and, and imaginations that are in the book. COVID has obviously um, yes. I mean that in many ways, but it is still very much an ambition. There are many talks going on uh, around this book. Uh, one is going to be at my home institution at the LSE with Salem on March 18th. There's plans to be conferences at the University of Westminster, at Harvard University um, in later in this year. And, you know, one of the probably the most regrettable things as well with, with this book is not being able to show people this physical artifact you know michael right. also had this uh publishing company of urban research and was very dedicated to the materiality of the book and i really hope uh, and think we have achieved a argument and demand for the importance of books uh, of, of in their material form because it is a remarkable thing to hold to flip through it captures 
the imagination in in its materiality as well. Um, and I really do and can't wait to share that that aspect with people. Um, and so another reason why I very much encourage your listeners to to purchase the book as well. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to thank you for being on. I, I, Solemn as well. Unfortunately, he wasn't here towards the end. Uh, the book is Open Gaza, Architectures of Hope. Uh, Dean, I want to thank you for being on here today. No, thank you, Brian. It's really a pleasure. And to thank all my listeners. Uh, Solemn, thank you as well. Thank you. Thank you for, very much. And to all my listeners, thank you and have a great day. Uh,